This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. Today on the State of Ukraine, a deadly plane crash in Russia and suspicions of revenge. I'm Greg Dixon. On August 23rd, a plane crashed outside of Moscow, killing all on board. Among those listed on the manifest, Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner Private Mercenary Group. While that group has been instrumental in fighting for Russia and the war in Ukraine and other Russian-backed conflicts around the world, Prigozhin also led a mutiny in June, sending his mercenaries marching to Moscow in protest of what he said was corrupt leadership of the Russian military. As of August 24th, there is still no official confirmation of Prigozhin's death. However, Russian President Vladimir Putin has expressed condolences to the families of those who died in the crash and has spoken of Prigozhin in the past tense. We're going to hear about the possible ramifications of the presumed death of Yevgeny Prigozhin in a moment. But first, Steve Inskeep talks to NPR Moscow correspondent Charles Maines about what happened. First of all, we know about the flight path. Uh, Radar shows the business jet heading from Moscow to St. Petersburg, and then a little over 30 minutes into the flight, uh, the plane suddenly starts to fall from the sky. Uh, Russian aviation authorities say there were 10 passengers listed on board, among them Yevgeny Prigozhin, and rescue teams say they've found 10 bodies. Uh, Meanwhile, the crash site's been sealed off. Uh, The bodies of the victims are apparently moved to a local morgue. What we don't have is any official statement IDing Prigozhin's body or confirming his actual death, uh, just as we don't have uh, any confirmation of what caused the crash. And both those factors have fueled all sorts of rumors and conspiracy theories. Uh, That said, many of Prigozhin's supporters uh, seem to think he's indeed gone. A makeshift memorial appeared outside the Wagner Center in St. Petersburg. Many people would wonder how Prigozhin thought he could be safe anywhere in the borders uh, of Russia and certainly how he could be safe traveling around. Yeah, because he has certainly had a lot of enemies, uh, both in Ukraine, let's not forget that, and within Russia, the Russian military in particular. You know, Prigozhin criticized and insulted the top brass publicly. I don't think there's any question they hated him for it. Uh, but the source of Prigozhin's power and protection had always been his relationship, real or perceived, with President Vladimir Putin. Um, until Prigozhin mutinied. Well, right. And, and Putin publicly ultimately endorsed this deal that offered Prigozhin amnesty and life in exile in Belarus in exchange for ending the mutiny. And there was a sense here that Prigozhin, while a lesson figure politically, was being allowed to tidy up affairs and kind of plan his next chapter. You know, he was in St. Petersburg to close down his media holdings. He apparently met with African officials about Wagner's future role there. So there was a sense that he'd made amends and his ability to travel in Russia seemed to prove it. But one of the other takeaways uh, from the rebellion was that Putin looked rather weak. You know, Prigozhin had challenged his authority and gotten away with it. And certainly that narrative now changes significantly, uh, whatever happened to that plane. What happens now to the Wagner Group, which has been so important to Russian military fortunes in Ukraine and elsewhere in the world? Well, there's been a growing sense that Putin was interested in maintaining Wagner as a fighting force and less in keeping Prigozhin as its leader. A Putin spokesman said as much uh, when he recounted a meeting between the Russian president and Wagner rebels, including Prigozhin, in the Kremlin in the days after the mutiny. Uh, yet this plane crash appears to have taken the lives of not only Prigozhin, but other top Wagner commanders, which means Wagner is effectively now decapitated as an organization. Although doesn't it still have thousands or even tens of thousands of uh, armed men and women? 
It does. And and if the past is any lesson, those mercenaries have been fiercely loyal to Prigozhin. You know, think back to that rebellion. Prigozhin told them to march on this southern Russian city of Rostov-on-Don and seize a military base. They did it. Told them to march on Moscow. Off they went and then retreat. Again, they followed. No questions asked. And in the wake of this crash, we've seen prominent Wagner social media channels declaring that Prigozhin was killed by, quote, enemies of Russia. You know, my question is, who do the mercenaries think that enemy is? And what do they now do about it? NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow, thanks as always for your careful reporting. Thank you. Sean McFaint is following the plane crash and the aftermath. He's an expert on mercenary groups and a professor at National Defense University here in the United States. Mr. McFaint, welcome back. Thank you, Steve. Let's pick up where Charles Maines left off. He talked about the loyalty of the thousands of Wagner mercenaries. Were they personally loyal to Yevgeny Prigozhin? Most of them were not. They're loyal to the paycheck. They're mercenaries. Okay. Does that mean that anyone else in Russia can now pick up as long as they're paying the money and command that force? Not really. I mean, it, probably what's going to happen is that somebody within the Wagner organization will step up and take a Prigozhin CEO slot, but with who's more respectful of Putin and has Putin's blessing. Uh, because the, the Wagner wasn't just a, you know, one guy in charge of a lot of different individuals. It had some hierarchy and et cetera. So I think we'll see some replacement like that. But will this firm continue at all? Because, of course, part of the controversy that turned Prigozhin against Vladimir Putin was a move to essentially take away his soldiers, take away his troops and enroll them in the regular Russian military. Um, it'll continue. It may not have the name Wagner, um, you know, but when Prigozhin marched on Moscow and then when Putin blew out, you know, Prigozhin's plane from the air, likely, this is how mercenaries and masters negotiate because there's no court of law. They do it through force. We've seen this throughout history. Um, and I think that Putin needs a force like Wagner in Africa to carry out Russia's interests there, which is basically creating juntas in Africa that are not Western-facing, but Moscow-facing, and extracting gold and other minerals to fuel the war in Ukraine. Hmm. What do you think would have made Yevgeny Prigozhin think that he could continue moving around Russia safely? I think Prigozhin, no, he's not like Navalny. He's not a political opponent that you can safely lock into jail and forget about forever. He's a man with an army at his back. He's more like, you know, Julius Caesar or Marius from ancient Rome. And that makes him very political. But we've also known from history like Xenophon in ancient Greece that as soon as a mercenary leader leaves the protection of his mercenaries, perhaps via corporate jet, he's vulnerable. And, um, you know, and, and he overstepped many boundaries. So it's, it's a great question in the category of what was he thinking? Do you imagine, and I guess we just have to say we're imagining here, we don't know about the private conversations, but do you imagine that Putin himself might personally have assured Prigozhin, don't worry, you're fine, it's all good, we'll work this out over time? Putin is an old-school Machiavellian tyrant, and Prigozhin has a huge ego. So that's a completely uh, reasonable hypothetical assumption. Uh, you think that, that Putin himself might have lured this man into a false sense of security is what you're saying? This is Putin's a guy who goes and assassinates, you know, former KGB agents in the 1980s and their daughters in UK just for vendettas. So yes, I think he's a very vengeful man. He's an old-fashioned strong man, and he's sent 
all of Russia and all of the world a message with this plane that, yeah, I'm the guy in charge. And if you're going to go out the king, you best not miss. Okay, one other thing to wrap up here. We've talked about Prigozhin and Putin. We've talked about the Wagner Group's soldiers. We've talked about the Wagner Group's influence in West Africa. There is finally the question of Ukraine, where the Wagner Group seemed for a while to be uh, the most effective or least ineffective fighting force that the Russians have. Can the Wagner Group still be a significant player within Ukraine? It can. Um, its role will change slightly. So the Wagner Group is actually two groups, an old guard and a new guard. The old guard came in with Dmitry Ukin, a former special forces officer who was also killed supposedly on this plane. Mm. And they're recruited from pretty high-end um, elements like paratroopers and special forces. And the new guard was dumped out of jails last summer um, to become cannon fodder in places like eastern Ukraine. And their purpose is simply to, to die. Uh, and the old guard and new guard hate each other. And the old guard is mostly in Africa. And the new guard is mostly in Ukraine and Belarus. And they still, Russia still needs cannon fodder because this is part of the Russian way of war. If you look back at Stalingrad, for example. So they'll still be there, but they'll be under the command of the Russian Ministry of Defense. Gotcha. Sean McFate, author of The Modern Mercenary. Thanks so much. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for listening to The State of Ukraine from NPR News. We'll see you again soon. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Acorn TV. Acorn TV is brilliant television told brilliantly. From charmingly cozy mysteries to daringly dark dramas. Visit acorn.tv for a 30-day free trial with promo code NPR. Acorn TV. Brilliant. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the NPR Wine Club. Get the world of wine delivered to your door. When you join the NPR Wine Club, you'll receive the stories behind every bottle and favorite NPR shows and personalities arriving in liquid form, like Weekend Edition Cabernet and Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me Zinfandel. The NPR Wine Club is a delicious way to support NPR's programming. If you're 21 or older, uncork a special offer at nprwineclub.org podcast. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.